Good evening, and happy Easter from Christchurch Waco. Uh, I'm Father Lee Nelson, and this is uh, our continuation of the study of 1 Peter. And today we're going to be studying chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Uh, but first, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Well, it's been a while since we've done this study of First Peter, and uh, we're, we've taken a long break through Holy Week and the first week of Easter, uh, but I'm very glad to be uh, back and studying this again uh, because it directly ties in as we go through chapter 4 uh, with much of what we focused on in Holy Week, the sufferings of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So today, let's just do a little bit of an overview of the book uh, so far, this letter. Um, it was a circular letter written to the church in what is now modern-day Turkey um, in the first century, um, I would say, by the Apostle Peter. Um, it may not have been written directly to that church, but it certainly says in the opening verses that uh, it's written to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, if you hold, as uh, many people do, that this letter is written by the the Apostle Peter. It's written in the in the first part of the 60s of uh, of that of the first century. Um, if you hold that it's later and therefore uh, to a church that's suffering persecution, uh, it certainly it would be sometime in the 80s. Um, the, of course, the hybrid view is that. Um, it is a sermon of Peter uh, written um, to the church in Rome, suffering under Nero, and that later it is sent out to the churches suffering persecution in the 80s, uh, perhaps by one of the successors of Peter. Um, the letter focuses upon really two main things, and two main themes really stand out, and that is that the people of God, the church, and, and the Christian have been set apart for a priestly ministry of obedience and the sacrifice uh, that they give through their lives uh, to serve in a priestly role uh, in the world. It means that they are um, intermediaries between God and their neighbor, um, and they are there to not only await the revelation of Jesus Christ in the last day, but also to be examples uh, to their neighbors. We read many things which have often been difficult for Christians to hold uh, in, in many times, uh, but in particular in chapter three or chapter two, that uh, that these people are to maintain as much peace as possible, especially with governing authorities, uh, so that the accusations which are leveled against them may be found to be baseless. He also goes on at length to talk about the work of submission, the work of uh, certainly servants to be submissive to their masters. Um, and this is, a, this is a very difficult thing uh, to teach. It's a difficult thing to hear. But uh, so that um, their good conduct among the Gentiles uh, can, uh, can lead to uh, those who, who witness these Christians welcoming the day of the Lord Jesus Christ coming. 
So he calls them not only to be subject servants to masters, but wives to husbands, husbands to wives, and also to all Christians to be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. And he says, for it is God's will that by doing right, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Um, as we enter into chapter 4, uh, he turns to this massive question, and it's a question which has always been before Christians, of suffering. How are we to endure suffering? It's clear that uh, these Christians are suffering under the weight of whatever it might be. Um, in, a, in a very slight way, or a very you know, a simple way, it may just be that they're suffering uh, from, the, uh, from the scorn of their neighbors. They're suffering from uh, people who, uh, who look askance at their, at their lives, who say, we don't understand who you are. You, know, you, you, uh, you avoid all these things that, that we as a upright citizens of the empire do. Um, we practice idolatry. Why don't you? Um, and therefore, they suffer the rejection of their neighbors. It may be that they're suffering even more bodily suffering as well, um, and, and we'll get to that, um, but, but it's simply uh, that they're, they're undergoing a great deal of suffering. But we need to step back a bit and talk about one of the main things that's going on, which is that uh, the people of God are called to be a chosen people, to be a royal priesthood, a chosen race, as he says, a, a holy nation, God's own people. How does this happen? Well, in the end of chapter 3, he talks about uh, how the Christian has been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Well, how does this happen? Um, said a little bit about this today uh, during the homily uh, in the Eucharist, but it happens through baptism. We are buried with Christ in baptism, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, and raised with Him to newness of life. This is one of the main things that we should say in Easter, is that uh, as Jesus Christ was crucified in the flesh and buried in the tomb and rose to a new life, uh, the Christian has been buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and raised up to a new life. And he talks about this in this sense. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, and by this he's talking about uh, Noah and his sons and his sons' wives and his wife, uh, eight in number, uh, uh, being saved through water. In a sense, they die in that ark, and they're brought to new life at the end of this ordeal. And he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, like a bath, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. So if you were, to, I think if you were to ask Peter, well, what is the gospel? He would say something like this. The gospel is Jesus Christ exercising his kingship by being crucified, by being raised from the dead, by, and by exercising this kingship in the new life which he has at the right hand of God. And for us to be incorporated into that through the waters of baptism by faith in him, uh, to be raised up to this life with a clear conscience, but to be joined to Jesus' resurrection. 
uh, and with Jesus to go into heaven with him at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject uh, to Jesus. Uh, Therefore, the priesthood which the Christian exercises happens through the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. And this is the uh, most basic way in which we might come to understand suffering. Other places in the New Testament, there are other understandings of suffering, but we really want to focus tonight on what Peter says about suffering. So let's read uh, just the first three verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same thought. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer by human passions, but by the will of God. Let the time that is past suffice for doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. So he again ties this to Jesus Christ suffering in the flesh and having suffered in the flesh, ceasing from sin. Now, we we really need to be careful here. We don't want to say that Jesus Christ sinned, but we do want to say that in his risen life, having suffered, He is no longer subject to the penalty of sin, right? He's no longer subject to death, as Paul says. Uh, So in the flesh, he has ceased, you know, and, and we need to keep in mind that Jesus Christ is made to be sin on our behalf. In his risen life, he he is subject to sin no longer. So as a corollary here. Peter is basically saying, if you have been incorporated into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have, in a sense, suffered with him in the flesh and therefore ought to cease from sin. Um, you're, you're done with human passions, having been crucified in the flesh in this, in this way through baptism, um, but to live by the will of God. So this new life of righteousness, which is worked in the Christian, starting with baptism and continuing on through new life in the Holy Spirit, is what he's after. This life by the will of God. Let the time, he says, that is past suffice for doing what the Gentiles like to do. And he gives this accounting for what the Gentiles like to do. And you can imagine these Christians uh, in, in Asia Minor um, uh, considering all this that their neighbors do, and it's one of the things that marks them out as strange or odd that they don't participate in licentious actions. And what does licentiousness mean? Well, licentiousness essentially means doing whatever it is you want to do. It, it's, it's licensed to, uh, to do whatever you'd like, to follow every passion. Um, he speaks of the Gentiles' drunkenness, their revels, uh, the way that they have parties, the way that they carouse. Uh, lawless idolatry. We'll go on with uh, verse 4 through 6. They are surprised that you do not now join them in the same wild profligacy. I love that. Wild profligacy. And they abuse you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached even to the dead, that though judged in the flesh like men, they might live in the spirit like God. So he's saying a lot of things here, but let's break it down. First, he says, these Gentiles are surprised. And I think it's, it's certainly possible that this letter is written to Gentile Christians living in that area. So let's not be confused. He's saying that the people that they're surrounded by in these areas, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, 
are full of people who are surprised that these Christians don't join them in these wild actions. And so they abuse these Christians. They, they uh, treat them badly. Um, they laugh at them. Uh, you can imagine the sorts of things that they're doing. But listen to what he says. He says, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Who is this? Was well, Jesus Christ, who is simply waiting at the right hand of the Father to come uh, to exercise judgment in the world. And then he takes what might be seen to be a wild turn. This is why the gospel was preached even to the dead, that though judged in the flesh like men, they might live in the Spirit like God. He has actually mentioned this in chapter 3, that Jesus, in his descent among the dead, goes and preaches the gospel to the spirits in prison. Now, it is to say that he's giving another account as to why Jesus would do this, why he would go among the dead and preach, to, preach the gospel to those who are in prison. And the answer is, is actually right there at the, end of chapter, at the end of verse 6. He says, they're, they're judged in the flesh, they're among the dead, these, 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 these souls of those among the dead are being judged in the flesh, but so that they might be alive by the Spirit. Now, this is a great mystery, and I think we have to keep all this in mind. But what does this have to do with the wild profligacy of the nations that surround these Christians in this area? Well, it is to say that those who are participating in these uh, forms of what he calls profligacy, uh, licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, etc., are, in a sense, dead. They're dead in their trespasses. They're dead in their sin. And Jesus is still proclaiming the gospel to them so that even though they're judged in the flesh, they might be made alive in the Spirit. And you can imagine these Christians uh, understanding this, that they have been made alive in the Spirit. And this is why he says um, in verse 3, let the time that is past suffice for doing what the Gentiles like to do. So it's a way of saying, you used to do all these things before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You were judged like men in the flesh so that you might live in the Spirit like God. Now, what does this have to say about suffering? Well, it has a lot to say about suffering. If, if you believe that you've been made alive by the Spirit through the resurrection of the dead of Jesus Christ, and this is not to say you leave behind this fleshly life. It's to say that you are exalted in the Spirit. Then you live in the Spirit like God lives in the Spirit. And then the things of the flesh, the suffering you experience in the flesh, is not quite so bad because there's another life that you're living. A supernatural life, you could say. So then he continues on with, with verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, keep sane and sober for your prayers. This is a time in which the church is looking forward to the, to the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh to judge the living and the dead. And he says the end of all things is at hand. It's right close. A little bit more about that later. But he says, therefore, keep sane and sober for your prayers. What is he talking about? He says, be sane and sober for your prayers. Well, he's called them in this letter a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. What are God's own people supposed to do as a priestly people? We are to be a people at prayer for the world. 
This is so important. We do it in the liturgy every single time we gather. Um, we, we stand up. This is why we stand for the prayers of the people, by the way. We stand up because the, the posture of a priest before God is to stand. Uh, this is why uh, in the Eucharistic liturgy, there's only one person in the church standing for good long stretches of the time. It's the priest, the celebrant. He's standing. Why? Because the posture of a priest before God is one who stands. And so they, the people are to keep sane and sober for their prayers as a priestly people, pouring out their lives, pouring out their prayers for their neighbors. Um, I, and having said this, I think you can, you can see where this is going. You know, we really do have a, have a question before us as Christians. Are we going to stand in judgment of our neighbors and therefore stand as a people who can't take their abuse, can't take uh, their, their, uh, their, their trouble, can't take their persecutions? Or do we stand as a priestly people who have a passion for our neighbor's who are lost in sin and death. Um, this is where Peter's going with this. You can either be a people who consider yourselves to be those who suffer for no good reason whatsoever, or you can consider yourself to be a priest who stands before God and prays. In the one, standing before God and praying, you'll stay sane and sober, and you'll keep up your prayers, and you'll keep praying for your neighbors. In the other, you'll think, why am I suffering like this? The one is a life in the Spirit before God. The other is a life in the flesh, which considers the flesh to be of utmost importance. Now, do Christians alive today still live in the flesh? Absolutely. Do we suffer in the flesh? Absolutely. But he's calling them to this life in the Spirit, which, to which they've been made alive by being joined to Jesus Christ in his resurrection and his death, for that matter. Um, so that they can be this priestly people who are, in a very real way, with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. So verse 8, Above all, hold unfailing your love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. So now having said something about what the posture of the Christian is to be towards your neighbor, your unbelieving neighbor, he says, Now, Above all, above that even, hold unfailing your love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. This is so utterly important. If the church becomes so consumed with loving our lost, sinning neighbor, but we don't love one another well, then we're simply loving our neighbor and infighting with one another to draw our neighbor into what? A dysfunctional church? No. It's, it's not good enough. And so he calls upon them to practice hospitality ungrudgingly to one another. Now, what does ungrudging hospitality look like? Well, I think it looks something like, you know, if you get invited over to someone's house for dinner, uh, don't sit there and say, well, you know, they made steak. Well, now I'm going to have to make steak, and I can't afford steak. I can't do that. Well, that's, that's a kind of grudging hospitality. It, it kind of looks at it as like a quid pro quo. You have to go back and forth, and you have to do it. If somebody does something nice for you, you've got to do the same thing to them. No, it's this idea you just offer without even thinking about being repaid. Um, you offer goodness and good gifts to your neighbors and you, and you take care of them without even thinking about what you're going to get in return. That's what it means to offer hospitality ungrudgingly. And he actually clarifies this. As each has received a gift, from whom? 
from God. As each has received a gift, employ it for one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, this is a very radical concept uh, for people who, who are almost, as modern people, we're often completely obsessed with fairness. Peter is here saying, listen, that doesn't even enter in. God, God's grace varies from person to person. Some have immense gifts. Others have very few. But what's the calling here? The calling is, as each has received a gift, employ it for one another. It's as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to each has been given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. The common good is so important in the mind of the Christian, and it really should be something that's important to us. It means that whatever we've been given stewardship over in our lives is to be employed for others whether it's a spiritual gift, whether it's a financial gift, whether it's a gift of, uh, of a talent, it's to be employed for others. Whoever speaks, okay, so, so he's not just talking about uh, the good gifts of material wealth. He's talking about spiritual gifts as well. He says, whoever speaks as one who utters oracles of God, whoever renders service as one who renders it by the strength with which, which God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very important, a very important thing to say, which is that um, all of the gifts given by God through His grace to the church are to be used for the upbuilding of the church, to be used for the upbuilding of the church, to be used for the good of our neighbor. And you can see how he's calling them, listen to this, he's calling them out of themselves, out of this understanding that, oh, woe is me, I'm just suffering so much, to think, no, 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 I've been given great gifts. And I ought to be able to give them ungrudgingly to my neighbor, to my fellow Christian, uh, across the board, I should give them away. If you have that posture in life, that everything has been given to you so that you can in turn just give it away, um, First off, you won't think that much about how much you're suffering. You'll, you'll go through life, you'll suffer a great deal, you'll suffer all sorts of things. But, but you'll think, you'll actually start to thank God for your suffering as a gift, rather than as something to be avoided. You'll start to receive all these graces with an open hand, and then they get taken out of your open hand as well. Uh, the posture of so many Christians becomes something like this. I'm going to hold out my clenched fist to receive gifts. And what does it look like? I'm holding on tight to it. Which means that nothing can get in. It just hits right like that. And nothing gets in. But what happens when you open your hand to both have things taken away, but also have things given? Amazing things start to happen. Um, I can say that in my own life, uh, my wife and I have had fortunes, and we've uh, what to us is a fortune, and then we've had it all go away, and we've had this happen multiple times. Um, and, and I'm not holding myself up as an example because sometimes we can be very, very stingy. But it's to say that that the the most blessing I've received is when I just said, you know what, it's not mine, <laughs> um, and I'm going to give it to my neighbor who needs it. I'm going to give it to the church that needs it. I'm going to give it, I'm just going to, I'm just going to think of everything that's in my life as something which is to be exercised for God and for his glory. And this is where Peter goes with this. He says, all of this is done so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
And then he finishes this whole section off with this, with this doxology. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Now you might think, okay, good, letter's over. Well, no, he keeps going again. And sometimes uh, this is a, uh, a, 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 there's something that could be said about this. Maybe, maybe it's that multiple letters are being, are being combined together or fragments being combined together. We have no idea what's going on here. Uh, it might be that there are multiple texts being put together. It might be that it's just a little stop to give a doxology to God and move on. But in, in, any, in any way, um, the reason for this life in the Spirit, which is ungrudging, which is open, which you might say is generous, is so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. When the Christian looks at himself or herself as, as one who is suffering and who's like, oh, I suffer so much. What are they doing? It's, it's actually an act of pride. It's not humility. It's pride. It says that, oh, it's all about me. Well, no, it's not. If you believe that your suffering can be used for immense good for the glory of God, then you will never say, why is this happening to me? No, you'll never do it. Because you'll understand that in that suffering, God is giving you the grace to meet it. And is giving you the gifts to endure it. So let's continue on here in verse 12. Uh, Peter writes, Beloved. Now again, I, I want to say what I've said in past Bible studies. But it, this is such an important word in Scripture. To call the hearer or the reader of this letter, Beloved, is so important. Because if you as a Christian know yourself to be one who is beloved by the Father, uh, who is loved, um, you can endure all kinds of things. And you can endure sickness, you can endure poverty, you can endure uh, uh, having everything taken away from you, you can endure the suffering which is inflicted upon you by your neighbors, you can endure all of it. But then he speaks about this. So, so he says, beloved... Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you as though something strange were happening to you. Okay. This fiery ordeal is a, is a rehashing of something that has been said before on two occasions. Uh, remember in chapter 1, uh, he says, In this you rejoice. This is verse 6 of chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have to suffer various trials. So that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this suffering that they're enduring is like the testing of gold in the fire. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen this, thought about it, but, but maybe you've got a gold ring. The, the way that that was made was by melting gold down. And then it's purified in the fire. All the impurities in that gold burn up. And eventually, if you heat it up enough, the gold itself will burn. You have to heat it really high, to a really high temperature. But, but, but listen to what he says. He says, the genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold. So, so hear what's going on here. Like, you've got gold, right? And, and let's say you're thrown into the fire. Well, what's going to burn up? Well, heated enough, the gold's going to burn up. What might be left? And he says, the genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold. And that will survive that fiery trial. And so when he talks about this fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you, 
He says, don't, don't be surprised by it. It's coming to prove the genuineness of your faith. It's coming to prove you. Um, don't be surprised as, as though something strange is happening to you. It's to focus upon trials as a way by which the genuineness of our faith may be tested. So he says this, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The Christian doesn't just suffer in isolation from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian suffers with Jesus. Um, uh, I'm reminded of, of uh, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy, um, uh, oh, Jonathan Edwards, in fact. Jonathan Edwards uh, actually held, and I think this is very right, that, that Jesus not only suffers upon the cross, but, but indeed continually suffers at the right hand of the Father, that his, his, his life before the Father is one of suffering. Which can sound very strange. Well, he's, you know, he's risen from the dead. How is it that he suffers? Well, he continually suffers. Um, he suffers in his body. Listen to what Jesus says to Paul on the road to Emmaus. Uh, 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 on the road to, sorry, not Emmaus, but, but to, uh, Damascus. What does he say? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus Christ directly. He was persecuting the church. But the oneness of Jesus Christ and his church is born out here. When the church suffers, Jesus Christ, her Lord, suffers with her. So he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice when, and be glad when his glory is revealed. What is, to, what is tested in the fire of suffering, what is tested in the fire of, of rejection by our neighbor, what is tested in the fire of, of being mocked, is the genuineness of our faith. And what happens when faith is genuine is that we rejoice and we're glad when we see the glory of Jesus, rather than being afraid. And, and this has to be said, that so many Christians are afraid of judgment. They're afraid of the end. They're afraid of what could happen. And Peter is here calling them, saying, no, 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 beloved, you're beloved, you're loved. Don't be surprised by the ordeal. Don't be surprised by the sufferings. You're suffering with Jesus and for Jesus. And listen to what he says in verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Listen to what he said before. The Christian is one who has been... Uh, granted access to the resurrection of the dead by being buried with Christ in baptism, buried in that water, and raised to newness of life to a clean conscience um, through the resurrection of the dead. And here, uh, we rejoice in Christ's sufferings because if we're reproached for the name of Christ, we're blessed because the Spirit of glory of God rests upon you. So, so this is to say that, 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 that one who looks to God in faith um, clearly has the Holy Spirit, right? And, and we can know this, that if we suffer in the name of Christ, we bear that Spirit. We bear that name. 
I mean, think about it. We, we actually had a, a private baptism here yesterday, and I was thinking about, you know, I was thinking about this very deeply. This little baby boy, you know, the name of God is inscribed upon his head with the mark of the cross. He didn't know what's going on with him. But, but he bears the name of Jesus from that day on forward forever. All of us do. All who are baptized do. Bear the name of Christ. And if we're we're reproached for it, if we suffer for it, then we do it for the glory of God and we can be be assured um, that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon us in that. But he says this, if you are, if, 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 but let none of you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or a wrongdoer or a mischief maker, yet if one suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but under that name, let him glorify God. He said this throughout this letter. Um, he, he says, uh, for instance, that, uh, that you should be subject to the governing authorities because it is God's will um, that they be in that place to punish those who do wrong and praise those who do right. Uh, so he's calling upon these Christians to live free from this and to not fall into the profligacy of the Gentiles and being murderers and being thieves and being wrongdoers. And if they can understand for a moment that if they can suffer as opposed to being involved in these sins, suffering as Christians, then they won't be ashamed. And they will, under that name of Christian, glorify God. That name of Christian is so important because it speaks to the oneness of the Christian with Christ. So important, the oneness of the Christian with Christ. And and so as a priestly people, we understand that as Jesus Christ exercises a priestly ministry, and we we can even say this, of suffering at the right hand of the Father, suffering in the flesh at the right hand of the Father, we too can exercise this priestly ministry of suffering in the presence of God and for His glory. Let's let's wrap this up a bit by talking about these these last three verses, 17 through 19. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous man, he's quoting uh, here in, in, uh, in verse 18 uh, from the Proverbs, chapter 11, verse 31, he says, quoting Proverbs here, if the righteous man is scarcely saved, where will the impious and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Um, It is simply this, not orthodox Christian teaching to hold that, that Christians will not be judged. Orthodox Christianity has always taught, always taught, that Jesus Christ will return to judge both the living and the dead. And Peter here teaches that Jesus will begin his judgment by judging the household of God, the church. We are on the bleeding edge as Christians, the bleeding edge as members of the church of this judgment. 
We should not think we'll be judged last. We should not think we won't be judged at all. We are to be judged first. And he's asking this question, if, if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? We, as a priestly people, should understand that we are to be judged first and them second. We should look at our neighbor, our unbelieving neighbor, who seems to be completely a mess, who seems to not, have, not be able to do anything right, who seems to just be, just be bowled over by sin and death. And we should say, but Jesus will judge me first. And then him, then her. In this final verse, he says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Here he appeals to God's priestly people, to this holy nation, the church, those who have been called out of darkness and into the marvelous light of God, to suffer according to God's will. Not because they've done wrong, but because they've done right. Not because they, they, are, they are named with sinners, but because they're named with Jesus Christ. Entrusting daily their souls uh, to a faithful creator. This is where I, I want to say something about uh, the, the interior life. Um, I've been saying a lot about the interior life lately, and I want to say more about it now. Um, in this time in which um, we are driven uh, to uh, shelter in place, be at home, uh, the life of the church and the life of the Christian uh, have been refocused upon the home, and I think refocused in yet another and probably more dramatic way uh, on the interior life. That life which we have before God which no one sees that life which we have before God, uh, which is just the heart, speaking to the heart of Jesus privately, that no one else sees. Um, I want to encourage you this day uh, to take the time, especially during the strange time that we find ourselves in, to, to feed and nourish that spiritual life. To daily, not just once a week, but daily entrust yourself uh, to the love of the Creator. This is such an important thing. Um, uh, I, I've been reading this wonderful book by, by a French priest uh, writing in the beginning of the last century called The Soul of the Apostolate. And one of the things he says that is so poignant and matters so much is that, is that we ought to love ourselves enough to take our spiritual life, to take uh, our status as those who will be judged seriously, even before we consider our neighbor. Because if, if we are floundering in this life, if we are floundering in the life of sin, if we're floundering as dead people, then what on earth can we do for our neighbor? I mean, how on earth can we say to our neighbor, stand up and walk? We can't. During this time in which we remember uh, and remember with great feasting uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead who goes from literally from death to life. We should remember that, that Jesus Christ has called us to abundant life. Not to be a people who are dead, but to be a people who are alive. What makes us alive? 
Oh, what makes us alive is to be joined with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. What makes us to be alive is to be called out of this world of sin and death and to live life by the Spirit with Jesus. May it be so for us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.